Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson and I'm joined by Rachel Sylvester and we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today has been both a chart-topping pop star and a Church of England vicar who's obsessed with his dachshunds, Daisy and Pongo, and was adored by his parishioners. He had a number one hit single with the Communards in the 1980s and as a contestant on Strictly Come Dancing, he once descended from the sky on a cloud wearing a white suit and carrying a gold harp. Now, the strictly rev Richard Coles is a successful broadcaster and author who's just published his debut novel, Murder Before Evensong. He is, as his beloved husband David, who died in 2019, used to say, a borderline national trinket. But his father's business collapsed when he was 13. He had a mental crisis after coming out to his mother at the age of 16, and he was never allowed to have a church wedding to the man he loved. Now, he's given up his Northamptonshire parish and feels unwelcome in the Anglican church to which he has devoted much of his life. Things change, we're told. Play the long game, and I have, he wrote recently. But now I see change shifting more to exclusion than inclusion. Richard Coles, thank you so much for joining us on Past Imperfect. Thanks for having me. What did it feel like to leave your parish after all those years? Do you feel a sense of liberation or loss? Well, I sort of feel I've just been on rather a long holiday because I'm still there. (laughs) And weirdly, in the past three days, I have been through it three times. I had to call in on my road back from Scotland the other day to pick some stuff up. And then I've been on the train past it twice, yesterday and today. So I I haven't really yet kind of grasped I think that I'm that I'm no longer there it'll take a while but you have also moved house haven't you which must have been very strange you leaving behind the garden that David created and you said the year after he died it was as if he was giving you one last bouquet it must be very poignant seeing it and what do you miss most well it was really odd because I called in at the vicarage yesterday and the garden was all overgrown. I've not been there for six weeks oh, and it's no. had the garden, no attention given to it. So it it was kind of weirdly overgrown and it was just a reminder that you may be uh, in Eden one day, but uh, you never know what's going to happen. And yeah. uh, you may have to quit Eden unexpectedly, as indeed I did. So it's an, it's an odd feeling, but I'm getting better at getting used to being in a world which David is not in anymore. So that's simply time that does that. Um which is, I guess I'm pretty much more or less where you would expect me to be. And do you think this is a fresh start or do you think it's an attempt to rebuild your life? Or I don't know. When the love of your life dies, mm-hmm. not only do they cease to exist, but your future ceases to exist as well. So we had a plan about what we were going to do and it just disappeared with David and I didn't know. So I would stand up and face forward, always a good thing to do if you can. But it really helps if you've got a view, a framework... And there was nothing. So I kind of looked forward and it was 
a friend of mine who um, once had a go, a, what's it called, piloting, captaining an icebreaker in the Gulf of Bothnia, said he thought he knew what he was doing, but he looked forward and there was no discernible gap between sky and ice. It was just a blank white. And when he looked at his GPS, he was kind of wiggling around all over the place. I thought, well, I'm having that because that, it felt exactly God. like that. Interesting. But you've moved into a new village, a new house, a new life. What's that like? Do you? It sounds very kind of Midsummer Murders, which is perfect for writing your crime novels. Well... Um, there haven't been any murders in my new village. There was a murder in my first week in my last parish, actually. So oh, really? the, you, know, you never know what you're going to get. It's odd because I'm not the vicar. And my church, my my house overlooks the church, but it's a church where I have no, uh, I don't have, a, it's not mine. And so I try to walk around not being the vicar, but I sort of smile at people <laughs> in the street in the way that you do. How does the vicar feel about having you there? Well, he was very diplomatic about it, actually. And uh, we've been very cordial, been in touch. And I've said, um, I'm going to be attending church somewhere else, but uh, if ever I can, you know, if ever you're stuck, give me a ring and I'll help out as best I can. So um, I think everyone will be happy with that arrangement. And do you feel almost proprietorial when you are the vicar for a village? Yeah, you do. Proprietorial does sound a little bit um, imperial, perhaps, but no, not probably. But you do feel a duty of care. And that remains, actually. I feel, I still feel a duty of care to my parishioners, even though I'm no longer in post. Yeah. And we want to take you back to your childhood home. You were born in Northampton. Your grandfather was a wealthy shoe manufacturer and your father inherited the family business. What were your earliest memories? My earliest memories were living... We lived in this sort of Kettering's version of a millionaire's row, which was um, a street was called Walkton Lane, which is on the kind of hill above Kettering, where the shoe barons, when the shoe barons came into existence, all bought houses and moved out of you know the town and up the hill to the the posh street. So we lived there, and everybody we knew was also a kind of shoe baron, and we grew up in that sort of world. I think I took pretty much for granted. We lived quite comfortably. We had a nanny who looked after us. Um, my mum didn't work, although she kept herself very busy. My dad was always at the factory. My cousins lived in the same road. My grandparents lived in the same road. So it was a, it was a pretty good childhood actually. And then we had a, another base in North Norfolk because in the shoe towns of North Hampshire, everybody went for their holidays. Factory fortnight went to Hunstanton, so we had a little cottage in a village near Hunstanton. So we would decamp there in the summer, and it was very settled actually. I went to the same school my father and my grandfather had gone to. And what were your parents like as parents? Were they very loving touchy-feely or were they quite remote not touchy-feely they were certainly very loving I never doubted for a second that they loved us my father was a handshaker so we would always he used to send me a fax sometimes in the 1980s would you always send a cover note with a fax saying <laughs> to Richard from father page one of two you know so he, he liked the formalities he liked a world of formalities he didn't like uh, people to be overly emotional he didn't want he hated things to be upsetting. And my abiding memory was everyone, everyone, if an argument got heated, he would raise his hands and sort of pat it away very gently, going, calm down, calm down, calm down. And he was, he was a gent, old school. Uh, and my mother was much feistier. And I sometimes think that it would have suited both of them if they'd belonged to a generation where my mother could have gone out to work and my father could have stayed home. I think they'd have preferred that, really. Interesting. Um, then when you were 13, your family circumstances changed dramatically really when cheap imports from um new shoes yeah um, meant that your 
father's business you know wasn't really viable anymore yeah and, i mean it was old story in the 70s the collapse of the manufacturing base in britain in the shoe sector it was cheap i remember my dad coming home from the factory one day and he had a box and he took out two two gleaming chestnut brown loafers and he said they're better than we can make them and they're cheaper than we can make them they were from portugal and the writing was on the wall and very very quickly what had been a big and thriving group of companies dwindled to nothing he managed to sell what was left of it but by then it was specializing in protective footwear and motorcycle boots and it went and it was very tough for my dad because he was the fourth generation and it employed lots of people and it had been very successful and all of a sudden it wasn't and i think he he really suffered as a consequence of that and it wasn't his fault and did it affect how you lived as a family it must have had an enormous impact yeah we did so three of us were at uh, public school my younger brother was taken out and went into the state sector then which i think later he rather struggled with that um although he's doing fine now um and our second thing was so we had to sell the house and move. We moved in with my grandparents for a bit, and then we moved to a more modest house. I mean, it was hardly poverty, you know what I mean? But it was a step down. And I think at that age, I was 13, 14, I was unusually conscious of status in the way that boys, perhaps girls, are too at that age. And at school, the car your father drove and the house you lived in and where you went on your holidays was significant to me, spoke to your prestige, and I felt a, a demotion. And I think, if I'm honest, some iron entered my soul um, and I sort of must have vowed somehow that I would do my very best never to suffer a reversal of fortune like that. Did it want to make you prove yourself to the school as well and to your friends? I was already busy enough proving myself to all and sundry. I think. <laughs> were you very was, competitive when you were young? Yeah, very competitive and very ambitious. Um quite extraordinarily so when I think about it now. Did you want to be Prime Minister? Didn't want to be Prime Minister. No, I wanted to be a great composer. Uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to, I wrote a letter to Benjamin Britten when I was eight. And I mentioned this on Twitter and someone at the Britain Peers Foundation found the letter and sent me a copy of it in which I told Benjamin Britten that he was my third favourite composer <laughs> after Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and how much I would like to be a great composer myself. And he said some encouraging words. So how did you, when did you first discover you loved music? What was it about music? Well, really early. So when I was, my mother tells me that when I was a baby, if there was music on the radio, I would cry or laugh, depending on the mood of the music. And then I started playing the piano at the age of four. My grandfather was a pianist. He was a very, very lively, flamboyant character. And he used to sit at the piano. He had a grand piano with a cigarette in a holder and sing Stanley Holloway songs, which made the adults mysteriously laugh. And I realised that was because they were full of innuendo, which I didn't understand. But I loved that he got all this attention. And I thought, well, I'd like to do that too. So I started learning the piano at the age of four and took to it. I had a great aunt who was a violinist who lived in London, in Notting Hill, with a lady called Elspeth. She wore jobbers and smoked a pipe. And, um, and she, was a, she was a fine musician, a violinist. What about practice? Well, I started so young, I didn't know it was a chore. So I think I was able to do a lot of the drill, the boring stuff. I think you get to realise a chore is a chore about eight or something. Um, and so by then I'd, I'd kind of broken the back of the really, you know, well, I'd, I'd climbed the foothills perhaps. And I, I took to it. I loved music and um, I still do actually. I love it more than anything, I think. And then I was a chorister. So my, my school had a good choir, good chapel, good music. And I joined the choir as a boy treble when I was eight. 
and had that thing that you know you're so common for musicians who come from England is that you you have a you know you start singing to a professional standard while you are literally in short trousers, and I learned the rudiments of four part harmony and all that stuff before I even knew I was learning. Yes. And how much do you think it was about the singing, and how much was it about the performance and the outfits? Actually, oh, I don't know how you unpick those things. So. I was the most competitive choir boy in the history <laughs> of sound. It's almost so, an oxymoron to me, actually, that you're that competitive. Oh, well, we were very, there were lots of boy trebles who were eager for the head chorus, the coveted head chorus, because you got a uh, red ribbon and a big medal if you were head chorus. <laughs> and I've always been very... Did you I, get it? I did, actually, oh, yeah. No. So, I did, but I had to crush my enemies, Porky Hamblin and Mark Berry, um, <laughs> on the way up. But I think they were quite understanding about it. <laughs> Uh, but I did get that coveted spot, so actually when I got all the solos. So were you just a huge show-off? Because there was one yeah. day, wasn't there, where you made your mother buy you a huge purple fedora hat? <laughs> yes, I did. From Harrods? From Harrods. It was, so we went, came to London on a treat. I must have been about 10, and I took, my parents took me to Harrods, and I made them buy me a purple fedora. <laughs> my mother had a thing for Roy Strong, who was then in his sort of first glory yeah. at the National Portrait Gallery. And uh, he used to wear a fedora, so I thought, well, I'll wear one too. So I did, and I remember proudly strutting. We went to a concert at the Albert Hall in the evening. I remember proudly strutting down Kensington Gore, <laughs> wearing my fedora, and a man said, who's that peculiar little boy? And it hadn't occurred to me that anyone might think I was anything other than a dandy. And then there was a gust of wind, and it blew my fedora off, and it got run over by a number oh, nine no. bus. Yeah. Oh, no. Did you ever get it back? Yeah, it was rescued, but it was never the same. No. And was music connected with religion in your mind at all? Or do you think they were two separate things for you and your child? I didn't think about religion. I wasn't interested in religion. The minute I did think about it, I thought, well, that's a load of nonsense, clearly. So I think from the age of eight, very early, I started the Chapel Choir Atheist Club with Matthew and Paul. Right. And, um, and Paul so, bashing them over the head mm, to get the top job. Yeah, <laughs> um, we were terrible. I played poker dice during the sermons, I remember. And... Um, but I loved the music, and more than that, I loved being in chapel. I think like lots of people, I sensed there was something there that was distinctive, and you could take stuff there that wouldn't go anywhere else. And and I, it was completely separate from my intellectual engagement with it, which was this is a load of nonsense. No one in their right mind could possibly believe this stuff for a second. But emotionally, um, I was much more involved with it than I would have cared to admit. So interesting. And what's it like when your voice breaks as a chorister? Because that must be quite a traumatic, traumatic moment. Yeah. Because that is the the instrument by which you have achieved the dizzy heights of being head chorister with your red ribbon and your medal. Is it taken away then? Yeah. So you leave the trebles. And the head chorister is always, a, by convention, a treble. So it was a most exposing way. So I was singing a solo. It was a lovely little anthem by Maurice Green called Thou Visitest the Earth. And um, I sang the solo in it. It was civic service. The mayor was there. And my voice had the sort of creaminess that comes in a boy's voice just before puberty. And it's lovely, but it doesn't last very long. It's quite risky too. And I went up for a note and I sat on it and my voice just fell apart in the middle of the note. And I did that. And I realised that my that my glory days were done. So how do you feel? Traumatised. Yeah. Coincided also with the beginning of growth spurts. I started getting hair on my upper lip, which I didn't want because I didn't really want to lose the prestige that I'd enjoyed as a child. And I wasn't particularly excited by the idea of adulthood, I think. Perhaps I was scared of it. I don't know. Um, And then my father showed me how to shave and in that rite of passage. 
And that was that. I, I kind of didn't quite leave the choir at once. I became an alto then, so I was singing a slightly lower part. And then I became a tenor. And then I, I left, I came back to music much later on as a bass, and now I'm a tenor again. And uh, so I've sung Messiah. I have sung every part in Messiah. <laughs> and how old were you when you realised that you were gay? Or did it just creep up on you? I realised I was gay as soon as my sexual desires took on specific forms so boys I was at school with who I got romantic over I think I got romantic over them before that was erotic in retrospect so I think from very early on eight or nine I was forming sort of emotional attachments to boys which were romantic I think lots of boys do actually but when sexual awareness came along there was never any doubt that I was gay I rather hoped it was a phase I was going through I can remember rather pitifully asking a biology master if boys go through these phases thinking I was being discreet but of course he must have known what I was talking about um, but it was it was pretty traumatic because in those days especially in an all boys public school if you had been revealed as gay your life would have been you would have been such a target and I didn't want that to happen so I denied it very vigorously and also I was a swatty kid I was a nerdy kid I had glasses from the age of 11 and I didn't want to be the the one people turned on so I thought what I've got to bring so I became the class wit and and that got me through I sort of cultivated a sort of eccentricity and a dry wit that was what I brought to the party. So how did you come to terms with your sexuality and decide that you wanted to tell your parents? And Well I left school when I was uh, 16 I've completely messed up my O-levels and my parents had been forking up you know, forking out for this education. It must have been so furious. And I found a place, an FE college, where I could go and study drama, which is what I wanted to do by now, um, and also do a theatre studies A-level. So that sounded great. I've got a B. And um, <laughs> off I went there to Stratford-on-Avon, and I think it was leaving school and sort of heading into the world on my own, and I realised I'm not by nature brave or bold. I'm rather timid and conventional person. But I just knew that if I did not face the reality of my sexual orientation, I think I thought I would die. So I did. I told a friend and then I told my mum. And, you know, that was not an easy thing for her to hear for a middle-aged, middle-class woman in the middle 70s. How did she respond? Well, she didn't reel with surprise, I think would be the first <laughs> thing I observed. But she said, oh, I'll tell you. I mean, she obviously was very worried because I suppose, you know, if she had any, it's not a, something she knew very much about and what she did know about it would have been in terms of shame, I think, and disgrace and people being arrested for doing unseemly things, inconveniences. And, you know, that was not something that, a future that she would wish for me, I, I realise now. But she never gave me the slightest suggestion that she wouldn't love me or my father. So... I came out and then by then I wasn't living at home. I started living in my own life and I think I left them to get used to it, really. And I mean, didn't you tell them by playing Glad to be Gay? Five times five. in a row, yeah. And my mum said, are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> Did your dad get it? She told my dad. She said, let me tell your father because I think, I don't know. I did what I had to do and I was happy not to have to think about it too much because... It was quite a thing to declare, really. And did you know anybody really then who'd come out as gay or not? 
No, I didn't. So that's very brave, not to have any role models. I went to my brother, was at university, uh, Swansea, and I went down to see him at Swansea. And while I was there, I went into the newsagents in Swansea bus station. I was getting my bus home. And they had gay news held on a sort of bulldog clip up on the top shelf. And I boldly bought one. There was nobody in the shop. But I pulled one out and all the others fell on the floor. And at that moment, about 15 minutes <laughs> Walked into the room, they all looked like fierce Baptist ministers. <laughs> so that was a bit embarrassing. But that was my first conscious. I literally grasped something that I hadn't grasped before. And I was aware that there were lives being lived that were the life that I wanted to live too, but I had to find my way into them. In retrospect, of course, I was surrounded by people who were gay and dealing with it in their own way. But you then had a kind of emotional breakdown of some kind yeah. quite soon after. Do you think it was connected? Yeah, or? I think it was a sort of delayed reaction. And I think the sort of taking the cork out of that bottle, a whole load of stuff came up that completely overwhelmed me for a bit. And I felt, well, there's a history of um, depressive illness in, the, in my family, actually, in, the, in my father's side of the family. And I think I partly I inherited that. But it was really difficult. And... I really struggled with it. Partly it was to do with having these hopeless desires for boys who weren't available because they weren't gay. or And, and that was a really daft thing to do. And I'm, they were so lovely and patient with me when I think about it now. And um, like my best friend who I grew up with from the age of eight, he had the unwelcome um, burden of my unrequested and unreturned sexual desire for years. But he was always very decent about it. And we're now his best of friends. Um, I needed to be somewhere where there were other people like me who would want to be part of me as I wanted to be part of them. So I, I ran away to London. And one day you tried to take your own life. Yeah, I did. What? I was. This was when I was in Stratford-on-Avon. It was not long after I'd come out. And I just felt that... I think I felt that life was hopeless and that I would never be able to... that I would never be happy... And also, I think I felt at odds with the universe, that I felt I was not in step with a kind of, I don't know, a biological reality or something, that I was this strange, misshapen creature like the monster of glands or something. And it's so daft now, and I wish I, I wish I could have spoken to someone about it who would have put me right, but I felt very unlovable and unloved. And I couldn't bear it. So I'd been taking antidepressants and some sleeping medication. I stockpiled it and I took it. A big cocktail, but not enough to kill me, unfortunately. And I woke up in hospital and then I was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. And I had three, not three, it was about two months as an inpatient at St Andrews in Northampton, which was a beacon of enlightened care. And I had a lovely time. So what was it like? Did it help? Yeah, it did. I mean, it, I think what it did, it just took me out of the situation that was causing me pain. Uh, I was taking medication then, which helped too. And I was in therapy. I was talking to people. I remember it was enormous relief at feeling I don't have to sort of pretend I have to manage this anymore because I knew I couldn't. So I spent this um, hilarious time there, actually. They were so much fun, the people I was in with. And, uh, and I woke up one morning and I knew I was okay. And uh, I'm still in touch with uh, my psychiatrist, who's a lovely man called Colin Wilson, who was company, the, the shrink at the back of Company magazine. And he still lives in Northampton. I went to have tea with him a while ago. And he was, he was just great. And he said, 
I remember sort of declaring in therapy that I was gay and he was completely unconcerned about it. He was all oh, right, do that. And I realised, oh, this isn't actually very important after all. And that was really good that somebody who was responsible for my care, who wasn't gay but was professional, just made me realise, oh, actually, this is not such a big deal, actually. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest Richard Coles. There'll be more from us after this. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, Richard Coles. So did you experience homophobia or did you just not let it bother you? Yeah, but I mean, it was it was a fight and we fought back. And if you are, you know, if you are the object of that sort of hostility, if you can fight back, it's incredibly empowering to do that and we were very brave and also I met people like Jimmy Somerville who you know is five foot one and he's not someone you would imagine would be particularly on your side in a battle but he's utterly fearless and incredibly brave and wouldn't for a second hesitate to uh, go nuclear with anybody <laughs> in, in a two which is great when he's on your side but not on your side not so good and, uh, but he was just an inspiring person to me and, and we how were, did you meet him? We met in Gaze the Word bookshop. Right. So one of the places where I'd opened up by that previous generation again was a bookshop still there in Marchmont Street in Bloomsbury. And it was a gay bookshop and they had a coffee shop at the back. So you could go there and sort of browse the shelves and see what gay people were thinking and doing. And then at the back you could have a cup of coffee and a cake. And that's where I met Jimmy. 
And he and his flatmate, Connie Constantine Gennaris, who's a filmmaker in Greece now, they got their doll check one week, and then me and Toby, who lived around the corner, we got our doll check the next week, and so we would sub each other in the lean week waiting for your doll <sighs> And that's how we became friends. And what did it feel like when you got to number one? It was extraordinary. I mean, because I kind of, Jimmy was a very inspi- is a very inspiring person. When he opened his mouth to sing, it was just an extraordinary thing. You heard it, and the hairs on the back of your neck went up. Did he have a better voice than you? Oh, God, yeah, hugely. I mean, he could do anything, Jimmy. Yeah. Extraordinary voice. And it wasn't only a voice that was came out of his artistry. It was a voice which expressed our corporate life. He was the anthem singer for us um, and in a huge natural gift. And I was very fortunate to hitch my wagon to Jimmy. And we were very different. You know, he was from working class sectarian background in Glasgow, incredibly brutalised in his childhood. And I was from, you know, middle class public school England. And we were very different. But of course, if you can find common cause with people who are very different, often that's very creative. And we did. It delighted in each other and our differences. And sometimes, most of the time, it's great. And then sometimes if we were, if we fell out, it was difficult. We didn't really understand each other. And But it was also the era of the AIDS crisis. Yeah. How did that affect you? Well, it was the best of times, the worst of times. At the moment of our highest achievement, when the world was at our feet, out of the blue, unexpectedly, came this terrible catastrophe. Do you remember when you first heard about it? Yeah, I was. there were reports in the gay press about a gay cancer that was appearing in the East Coast and West Coast of America that they thought might be related to the use of poppers, amyl nitrate. And I didn't think very much about it. And then the numbers that were getting ill rose. And then there were one or two cases in London and in Paris but of course, you don't really get that until somebody you know dies. And our friend Mark Ashton, who's a remarkable, lovely man, had a cough on a Tuesday and died on a Friday. He was 27, hugely talented, uh, extraordinary charismatic person. And then we, we had to get used to living in this really awful time. It was terrible. Horrendous. It must have felt like a roller coaster because half the time you, you were in the celebrity music you know, great, gay, fun world. And then the rest of the time must have been spent worrying about, I mean, now we've all gone through a pandemic, Yeah. what that was like. And it, it must have been very difficult because it was so much centred around your community yeah. at that time. And, you know, we felt that the gains that we've, we've made in those past few years were all of a sudden lost because it just gave ammunition to people who were hostile to gay people. Oh, look, you know, this is what happens to them. They are, I think, as the then Chief Constable of Manchester said, swirling around in a cesspit of their own making. And that was... The worst thing was, was not there were always sort of people, angry people on the fringes of things, and they're not really important, but it was what was happening in the mainstream. And there was a, I remember a, a leader in, I think it was the Daily Telegraph, that said in that very Olympian way, the problem with AIDS is that it's not confined to homosexuals. I remember thinking, oh, thanks. Wow, that's extraordinary, isn't it? And we realised that we were going to have to fight this ourselves. So all that activist energy then went into doing what we could to look after people who were ill and to win the, you know, the battle for people's sympathetic engagement. So emotionally, do you have this constant sense of foreboding or did it become a kind of 
activating force for you? You did what you had to do. It's very interesting now, 35 years later, I talk to friends of mine. We For the first time, we're talking about it now because I think it was so awful that we... I talk to veterans of war about this. Often they say there's a sort of 30, 40-year bake for traumatic experience and you just leave it there because it's, you have to live it, you have to get through it. And then years later, you can return to it. It was actually a Remembrance Day service in Halifax in about 2007, I think. And I was there, and it was a memorial. You know, it was a memorial service for those who had fallen in war. And I was with another friend of mine who's also a priest, who's also gay, and also been through the eighties. And we looked at each other, and we both began to cry that it was acknowledging a loss that we we had experienced too, that was not observed by the world. At one point, you pretended to be HIV positive. Why did you do that? Do you think? I don't know. Was I mean, any- I think it was partly to get attention. I think it was partly to, why do people lie? All the usual reasons. Mm. So I'd love to give you some, I'd love to dignify my reasons for doing that. But actually I think I just lied in the way that anyone lies. It was a stupid, it was like a childish lie because it was so obviously going to be exposed. Mm. So uh, once I'd lied, I then realized I had to fix it. So I had to go around and tell people who loved me and cared for me that I, I told them that it was actually possible, which in those days when you were going to die, that actually I wasn't, that I'd made it up. And understandably, that meant mixed reviews. Uh, my best friend, Matthew, didn't speak to me for a year because he was so angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was fine. But it was not easy, actually. And how did you discover religion? find faith however you want to describe it well it was a rediscovery in a way i think what happened was was after all that turbulence particularly after about the end of the 80s really and also i met someone and i formed a very deep attachment to this guy who was lovely but it was a disaster and very destructive and i crashed and burned also coming out of pop music went to ibiza and we just took lots of drugs and parted for I can't remember how long it was and then came back home and crashed and burned and I realised I was going to have to sort of get a grip and as I began to get a grip I remembered what I had felt when I was in chapel as a boy I thought I just want I wonder what that's like and I just felt that it was a place where I could take that stuff even though you hadn't believed as a boy well, that was, I really wrestled with that because yeah. I thought, I don't believe this at all. And if I know one thing, I know that I will never, ever, ever succumb to religion. And then I walked through the door and I realised it was actually my my, my natural habitat. Mm. And, and I connected emotionally. And then once I'd done that, then intellectually, I began to find my way into, into faith. And you talk about the hypocrisy of the all-welcome signs in churches. As you put it, some of us were and are as welcome as Typhoid Mary. Yeah. How did you discover that? Did you know from the beginning that that being gay was going to be an issue? I think so. But at that moment, sort of end of the 80s, early 90s, we felt that there was this movement towards inclusion. There were lots of churches where there were lots of gay people just getting on with things quite happily. So it wasn't hard to find somewhere where I would not meet a hostile reaction. But there were other churches in the spectrum where where you would, and that's the case now, I think. Um, But this, it was a very different mood then. You did feel that the direction of travel was towards inclusion. And uh, so it felt like you were on, you were 
riding along on the winning horse. And did you feel that God did accept you? Oh, so no. never yeah. had a moment's doubt about that. I, um, I never for a second thought that God felt any differently about gay people than yeah. God felt about anyone. And what made you want to become a vicar, do you think? Was it the sort of serving the community or having a role or being well, in charge or the singing? Or was it, is it the whole package, really? Well, it's vocation, actually. Mm. And I think what happened is I kind of began to settle in faith. And it was like a fuzzy picture and it came into focus. When it came into focus, I saw maybe this is going to be something... Maybe I have got this ordina- uh, vocation to ordination and I put it off for as long as I could and then I went to see some people about it and they said, yeah, we think you do and then I was accepted for training. I was completely open about everything. I was rather hoping that the openness would cost me uh, my place because I was, in a way I didn't really want to be ordained but I think everybody saw that it was a real vocation. I mean, I think that's the only... The only ground. I mean, there are all sorts of things. I've got. You can see that I like dressing up. You can see that I like the music. You know, I like preaching. Like I like all that stuff. But if you didn't actually have a vocation, none of that would be enough. You see. Um, so, are there moments when you're frightened? So, you talked about how there was a murder in the um, parish in your yeah. first week, and though you had death threats yourself, didn't you? Do you find sometimes that your parish family is frightening? No. Never been frightened on duty. My brother, who was a cop, said that getting punched on duty doesn't hurt as much as being punched off duty. And he's right, actually. And there were one or two occasions when I did get... I was the object. I was did get punched and attacked a couple of times. Um, but it didn't frighten me. I just... I remember one day, it was one morning, there was a ring on the doorbell, about quarter to six, it was early. I was up, I was in my, in my dressing gown, and I opened the door, and there was a guy wearing combats holding a shotgun on the doorstep and I just thought oh so that's how I die then oh my gosh and so uh, what happened? it was a baptism inquiry <laughs> <laughs> he'd been out shooting rabbits and uh, he wanted to make a better because it wasn't a baptism inquiry it was about something else as it turned out but but I did think oh well, that's how I know. but it, well, I wasn't scared I just thought oh well there you are then um, and how did you meet David because he does sound extraordinary with his collection of bagpipes and oh gosh yeah and... well I met him I went to preach at a friend's a friend of mine was ordained. He was celebrating the Eucharist for the first time at church in Norwich, and he asked me to preach. So I went along to do that, and David was at that church. And I noticed him in the congregation. I thought, oh, good-looking <laughs> And then he moved into my queue at communion in rather a sort of <laughs> obvious way. And then afterwards he came up to me and he said, um, he said, do you want a cigarette? Oh, okay. So he gave me his last cigarette, and if I'd known what, then what I know about him now, that's a really, really significant thing to have done. <sighs> so we had a cigarette and we talked and then he said he wanted to get ordained and he'd like to come and talk to me about it. And I said, OK. So he went, came to see me. I was in Boston and Lincolnshire then. And uh, we talked, very proper. I was very detached and professional, as I should have been. And we had lunch. And we talked all afternoon and then it was time for me to go to Evensong. And I said, well, I've got to go now. And he said, oh, I'd love to see you again. And I said, well, OK, well six weeks perhaps we'll meet up again and we'll see where you've got to and he went oh, okay and then as I was going into church my phone buzzed and it was a text from him and it just said don't you get it ah uh, oh. so um, did you then reply what did you... so I replied and then after evensong I drove to Norwich and that was that we just immediately fitted together and you write very honestly about his alcohol addiction yeah explain that you stopped being angry because you loved him and he didn't really need to feel any worse that's an extraordinary 
affirmation of love. God, it took a while to get there. I mean, at first, as he's drinking, he always he would binge, and it's not unusual to have hard drinking clerics. And David had been a medic for that A and E, and of course, that's not unusual in that those circles either. So. And he'd always been a bit of a drinker. And then the, his sort of binges grew more frequent and then they joined up. And then I realised he had a real problem. We all had a real problem. And at first I was really angry with him because I just thought, why are you doing this? Why are you wrecking what we've got? Why are you... And he behaved very badly when he was drunk. And he was sometimes... It was extremely... And anyone who's lived with an alcoholic will know how awful it can be. And it was as awful as anything could be, actually. Um, I had to involve the police several times. And it didn't do anything... You know, as a vicar, you are supposed to be sort of quietly omnicompetent and unflappable. And I couldn't be because of what was happening. And actually, I did learn that the community was wonderful and were very supportive and very kind. And that was good, actually. And I got angry and angry with him. And at one point, I just thought, why am I angry with him? He's the love of my life and he doesn't need me to be angry with him. There's enough people being angry with him. And I just stopped. And then we reconnected, actually. But he was never able... He stopped getting mad drunk. But I realised after a while, because I kept an eye on the empties, that he was still drinking as much as he had done. So he would have a Coca-Cola, you know, all the time. And of course, it wasn't a Coca-Cola. And he just continued to inflict the damage on his liver and his heart and his pancreas and all that stuff, and his brain. And eventually, it got too much for him. He was just 42 when he died. Yeah. Was it very strange to be on the other side of bereavement as a, as a vicar, having cared for so many families dealing with... Yeah, but of course you're the subject yeah. all of a sudden. Not the object is completely different. So I know what bereavement looks like and I know what you do. I know how the mechanisms and everything. Yeah. But I, I, what I didn't... Well, I did know because I'd seen it in other people, but what I didn't know would be like for me was that I went completely mad. So I was spinning like a top and I did the best I could to get through the day and to hang on to things and to make sense of what was happening and to talk to people but actually I was uh, all over the place. And did you blame God or did your faith bring you comfort? No. It was steady state actually. I, I never felt that I was owed anything different from everybody else. I never felt that belief in God gave me a get out of jail free card. I knew that tragedy happened to people and I knew that nowhere does Jesus say you will this this is your this is your lottery ticket um it's life in its fullness you know and I've certainly got that I was I was angry I was angry that he died and I sometimes wanted to find ways of being angry with people just to express my anger I had a huge meltdown in a Chinese restaurant in Liverpool with one of my closest friends and made him cry I was so horrible I just came out of nowhere and I erupted and anyway we sorted it out and it was fine but it was I don't know where it, well because I don't know where it came from I just hadn't realised that there was this seething seething volcano of anger and it came out and you write incredibly beautifully about it in your book The Madness of Grief and that you say that Thank there's you. no going back from bereavement no. um, and there's I, I, this quote I find very beautiful that the memory fades the wounds heal or so you think but I don't think it does fade really you just don't look in that direction that's right to, and do you, does it sometimes still surprise you even yeah. three so years on I've just come back from Scotland there's a place David and I used to go in Scotland in Kintyre which was really very special to us and it and this first time I've been back since he died, and I wondered what that would be like. 
and it was lovely actually because we had a great time together there and it was lovely to remember that but i did get there's this moment there's a raw grief but it feels like vertigo and you feel that you are falling and i got a couple of moments of that but it's not entirely unwelcome now because it's him yeah you and don't want to forget him no i don't want to mm. i don't want to be post grief mm. i owe him i don't know if that i just it's just you know i loved him and he loved me and i miss him and that's not going to change and i wouldn't want it to change what happens is you just get more time under your belt of being in the world without them mm. so you get more used to it i think um yeah how do you feel about the fact that the church never allowed you to marry? I felt so frustrated with it. I mean, at the time, being in the church, you kind of knew that this was a continuing argument. So you do what you have to do. And, you know, I wanted to be a vicar and there were certain obligations that came with that and disciplines that I had to uphold. And I did that as best I could because I wanted to be an honest dealer. Um, but when David died, I found it unbearable because I just thought... All I want is what everybody else takes for granted. I want my relationship to be treated with the same respect that your relationship is treated with. And it wasn't. And that seemed to be so egregious. And I thought of people who you know, would have been through that before and who weren't, weren't able to show their grief or their mourning and weren't cared for. And I just thought, this is just outrageous. And I thought, well, I'm not going to put up with that anymore. And... Do you think the church has become less tolerant while the rest of society has become more tolerant? Well, I think there are different parties within the church. And there is a liberal party, to which I would belong, that um, has settled this argument definitively long ago. But the party that's in the ascendancy is a conservative party that takes a very, well, they were considered to be an orthodox view of scripture. Now, we can argue about what an orthodox view of scripture actually is, but they're very much in the ascendant and they're highly activist and they've taken over a number of key positions in the church. And although they will not be explicit about this because they don't want to invite the shocked um, outrage of others looking in, they nonetheless hold to that line and it's an exclusionary line. They don't want people like me in relationships like mine in positions of authority in the church. They don't think we belong there. Um, and and that's really grim. You've left your parish now. Did Dave, losing David give you a clarity, do you think, about what actually matters in life? And I think so. the importance of being very true to yourself. Yeah, because to get through your day, you put up with stuff, right? When you take your head out of that and you realise what the compromises have done to you in order to do that, you just think, I am not doing this anymore. And so I thought, I'm simply not going to do this. I'm not going to, I cannot in conscience accommodate this anymore. And I'm not going to do it. And I thought, and it was part of a process which made me think that I needed to, well, I needed to retire. I've not left the church and I wouldn't leave the church, but I've left having a representative formal ministry in it because I just can't in conscience do it. And so I'll do all the things that priests do insofar as I'm, allowed to do them i need a bishop to license me to do that um but i'm not going to pretend that it is anything other than deplorable that we do not give lgbt people the dignity that they deserve
And the church should be, before almost anything, the upholder of human rights, the dignity of every individual person made in the image of God, you know? Mm. We want to take you back to that moment when you had a mental crisis at the age of 16, when your life could have gone one way or the other. What do you wish you'd known then that you know now? Well, I wish that I'd known that I wasn't this ugly and misshapen and unlovable person. I'm really heartbreaking to think of that now. And I'm 60 now, and I was looking at photographs of me and a friend when we were in our 20s, and we were both so handsome. And I thought neither of us realised it at the time. And I just wish I'd been more carefree about that stuff and not full of self-doubt and anxiety. Jesus says all the time to everyone he meets, don't be afraid. And I think I was full of fear, and it was not, it was misplaced, and I wish I hadn't. Do you feel that adversity in some ways does make you stronger? Yeah, of course it does, yeah. Life in its fullness means the shit as well as the smooth. And you have to... I think also lots of stuff in Christianity that's interesting happens when you realise that the limits of your own competence and reach and prestige are quite narrow, actually. And then once you get to that, then it begins to get interesting. What am I like when I am not you know, full of the sense of the person I want to be? What am I like when I kind of reach the edge of my competence and experience failure and remorse and that stuff? And we're really bad at that now because we live in a culture which just so valorises success and achievement, you know, of course it does, that we're not... We had to do a slogan for our, when the diocese said, well, think of a strap line for your church, what would it be? And mine was, welcoming losers since naught. <laughs> they said, no, that. we don't want that one. But I think, I think... That's really important, is that we are not about... We're not the apprentice. No one's getting hired at the end of this one. Everyone's fired. Richard Coles, thank you very much for joining us on Past and Perfect. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Past and Perfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, Richard Coles. The producer was Anya Pierce and Lucy Ditchmont and the series producer is Ben Mitchell. Listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, which features insights from our interviews with guests such as Richard Brunson, Tom Daly and Mary Portis. We'll be back with more Past Imperfect next week. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.